Indeed, we come together today very thankful for the opportunity to worship our God, to be called children of God, for that is indeed a privilege. And I appreciate so much the opportunity to be with you today. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 9, where we're going to begin our study in just a couple of moments. We're so very thankful for so many things. We're thankful for our God. We're thankful for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are thankful for our visitors, for those of you that are new to the community that have chosen to be with us today. And we are grateful for your presence and for the kindness that you are showing in being with us this morning. I want to talk this morning about a very familiar text in Acts chapter 9, as is also replicated in parts of Acts 22 and in 26. And I want us to ask a very simple question after making a simple statement. We all know that when it comes to the Apostle Paul, who becomes really one of the central characters and the primary authors of the New Testament, that he was saved, that he went from being not saved to being saved. He went from being someone who was an alien with no relationship with God, or at least a very strained one at the outset of his life, to being someone who was a firm believer, a Christian, a saint. What moved him from point A to point B? Because we all agree that when you think about the Apostle Paul, when you think about someone like Saul of Tarsus, that indeed Saul was saved, but the question for us is how was he saved? And that, I believe, is an elementary question to everything that we do and teach and practice as members of the Lord's church. I came across a postcard just a couple of days ago that someone had left in my mailbox or someone had delivered to me somehow, and it's from a local church, a denomination somewhere just a few miles down the road. And it says on the back of it, on the front of it, is the information about the church and where they meet and when they meet. On the back it says, you can know for sure you are on your way to heaven. And that's a wonderful statement. We can know that we are on the way to heaven. And it lists five different things that a person needs to do in order to be saved. Just like the Apostle Paul was saved when he was uh, called Saul and then later his name was changed to Paul. It says, first, realize that God loves you. And it quotes from the most famous verse of all, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Second, realize everyone is a sinner. I think we can all agree. I've got to realize that. I mean, if I'm going to be baptized, if I'm going to be saved, if I'm going to be like Saul and I want my salvation, I want God to save me, I've got to realize that I'm a sinner for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Third, I've got to realize that sin has a price that must be paid. After all, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you want more on that, encourage you to go back if you haven't already listened to David's sermon from last Sunday morning, April the 3rd. That was a very good sermon that outlined the wages of sin as being death. Number four, realize Jesus Christ died to pay the price. God commends his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And then number five, pray. Ask Jesus to be your savior and claim his promise of eternal life, as is outlined in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, where it says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's what the postcard teaches. 
And what is unfortunate, to give away, spoiler alert, where the sermon's going to go, is that most religious groups today, most denominations have some sort of a doctrine that is very similar to that. And the unfortunate thing, or the thing that we can maybe say is unfortunate, is that a good 75 to 80% of everything that that postcard outlines is valuable stuff. I've got to believe that I'm a sinner. I've got to know the price that Jesus paid for my sins. I've got to believe in him in order to be saved. Those are all fundamental things that Saul teaches us in Acts chapter 9, that the Bible teaches us in various places throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts, as well as other passages in the New Testament. When you think about the conversion of Saul, we understand that this is an important case study because Saul's conversion, his change is one of the most famous or familiar in all the Bible. People talk about Saul being saved, and oftentimes they'll talk about Saul being saved on the road to Damascus. And we're going to try to clear up some confusion on that today because that's not accurate in totality. Being on the road to Damascus led him to the city of Damascus where he contacted a, a friend, who, someone who became a quick friend of his, Ananias, and would teach him about what it was necessary in order to be called a child of God. It serves, as I suggested just a few moments ago, as what I would call a very good case study in biblical salvation and how it is obtained. And many people, as I highlighted just a moment or so ago, have what I would call an incorrect view, not because I have the correct view, but because the Bible has the correct view of how Saul was saved and how he became a Christian. And I believe that correcting this misunderstanding or this misinformation is essential in order to understand how the Bible requires us to be saved. Now, the target audience of this particular sermon, uh, I, I can think of three target audiences. And if you don't uh, fall into any of these three categories, you're welcome to leave. I hope you won't. Number one, those of you that are already saved, those of you that have already done what is necessary to become a Christian, whether you did that years ago, whether you did that in the last few months, whether you've done that in the last couple of days, and we rejoice over our new brother in Christ. But you who are saved, which is many who are here this morning because I, we know each other fairly well, we have the responsibility, first of all, of teaching others about what it takes to be saved, but we also need to have the truth reinforced in us. Target audience number two is those who are not saved, those who are not Christians, uh, and you need the truth, and so you need to be listening to these things. And then target audience number three is those who believe they are saved, but as we develop the story today, and as we come to the conclusion, you say, I thought I was saved, but I was not saved. So if you're one of those three people, three groups, I'm saved. I know I've been saved. I know I'm going to heaven because the Lord has promised that to me if I'm faithful. I'm not saved. Whether I want to be saved or not is, is, is really indifferent to the point that I'm making. And thirdly, I think I'm saved. So you can quickly see that that involves all of humanity, that all human beings fall into that category. Let me share with you three things that are the not side of salvation. How was Saul saved? Let me suggest to you that it was not without his consent first and foremost. 
Go back to Acts chapter 9, and I want to read with what my preacher friend sometimes calls is those fresh eyes. I read about eight or ten verses, and then come back and make some observations about Acts 9, 22, and 26. It says that Saul, still breathing threats against and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. This is Acts 9, verse 2, asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, and that's people who are of the way of Christ, so that's you, me, other Christians who uh, were followers 2,000 years ago, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, which is what Brother Bruce read for us in Acts chapter 26. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads or the pricks, which is what the King James Version renders. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise, go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but unable to see anyone. Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But when they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus, he was for three days without sight, and he neither ate nor did he drink. Then if you drop down to about verse 15, the Lord says, Go, for he, speaking to Ananias, the teacher, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, children of Israel. For I will show him many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Well, pause here for just a moment because we skipped that section where God basically comes to uh, Ananias and says, I want you to go and teach this man Saul. And Ananias says, are you talking about the Saul that I think you're talking about? He says, yeah, absolutely. He says, no. He says, that's a bad idea because I've heard really bad things that he does to people. And if he meets me, he might imprison me or drag me back to Jerusalem or have me killed. But he says, no, he's a chosen vessel of mine, verse 15. Ananias went his way and entered the house, verse 17. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose, and he was baptized. After that, verse 19, we may come back to, he received food, was strengthened, And Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. The experience, it seems to me, on the road and Saul's subsequent blindness were without his consent. Nobody would wish that on himself or herself. So when those things happened, that wasn't something that Saul, later to be called Paul, wished for himself. That was without his consent. But we need to acknowledge that Paul's or Saul's choice to obey was, and that was a matter of choice. And as you read through Acts 9 or Acts 22 or Acts 26, the three texts where we see this account relayed to us again and again by Luke, the inspired writer, you see where Saul has consent as to whether or not he's going to be saved. And the reason I point that out is because some people would suggest in religious circles or in certain religious communities that being saved is something that just happens to you, whether you know it or not. 
Well, this is something that Saul clearly knew was happening, and it was a choice that he made on that day some 2,000 years ago. In fact, if you go back to Acts 22 and verse 16, Paul had the option to obey or disobey Ananias' command. So the command was, arise, call upon the name of the Lord, and be baptized, having your sins washed away. That's Acts 22, verse 16. It's the most repeated verse in Acts 22, verse 16, among us as brethren, probably. And there in Acts 22, verse 16, when Ananias says, Saul, arise, be baptized, call on the name of the Lord, Saul could have said, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. I'm not interested in learning any more about this. And as much as we don't like to admit this, the majority of people that you and I interact with and the majority of people that we try to teach, that's going to be their response. Thanks, but no thanks. We may not even get a thanks from them. And that's okay. We dust off the sandals, dust off the, the dirt off our sandals in that proverbial way and say, well, I've, I've tried my best with this person to influence him or her for good, but I'm going to go and try to find someone else. And as uh, one of the greatest uh, evangelistas that I ever met would always say, Bernice would say, always leave them as a friend because you never know where you, they may come back to you or you may go back to them. So I say all that to simply suggest that Saul could have said, I'm not interested. But some would say in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15 that God chose Saul. And that is true. He did choose Saul for a particular purpose to be the vessel to the Gentiles. God has desires for all of us. But the fact is, is we have free will. We have free reign of our lives. We get to choose for ourselves what we must do. When you boil it down, the only thing you really have to do is to die. Some would say die and pay taxes. Well, uh, I didn't say this, but you don't have to pay your taxes. Now, if you don't pay your taxes, bad things are going to happen to you. But in life, certainties are really quite minimal, death. And so you don't have to do very much in this life. Again, you get yourself in trouble with the law, with your friends, or with your family. But the fact of the matter is, is we get to choose for ourselves. Remember that Judas was chosen too. Remember that he was chosen by God, and he had free will to make whatever choice or choices he wanted. Saul chose wisely, and Judas was one who chose poorly. And that's the case with each of us. We get to make the choices. It is not without our consent when it comes to salvation, when it comes to whether or not we are children of God. It doesn't just happen. You wake up one day and say, I'm a Christian. I didn't even know how I became a Christian. No, it's with a deliberate choice to do exactly what God has asked us to do. Let me suggest to you, secondly, that Saul was not saved because he thought he was right. You know, the majority of people that we interact with think they're right. I mean, most people don't set out to do wrong or set out to make poor choices. It is often said by people that they know they are doing right because they feel they were doing right. I felt that it was right for me to do A, B, or C. Well, in religious circles, And in a religious or spiritual context, it's a dangerous thing to govern ourselves by our feelings or what we are told our feelings should be. Saul certainly thought this was the case. How do I know that? 
Well, over in Acts 23, one chapter after 22, where we read about his conversion. In Acts chapter 23, he makes a very important statement. And this is probably a verse that should be highlighted or starred, at least in your memory. But it says, Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. What is Paul saying there? He's saying that in the last couple of days when I've been preaching the gospel, I had a good conscience. And when I was a Jew, when I was a Pharisee, when I was a follower of the old way, I lived in good conscience then as well. When I was arresting people, I thought I was doing my job and doing it to the best of my ability. So a person's conscience is not necessarily the best guide for being saved or being of the saved people. Furthermore, to the church at Philippi, Paul wrote about this in Philippians chapter 3 in one of the most encouraging chapters in all of the New Testament, it seems to me. And he says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, he's saying, as we talked about in our Bible class this morning, as being a good Jew, because I was a good Jew. I was of the circumcision, he says. He says, if anyone else Uh, thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And here's all the reasons I was so confident. Here's all the reasons that I thought I was doing right. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day, check. I was of the stock of Israel, big check. The tribe of Benjamin, check. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law. I was a Pharisee. He says, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church, thinking that that was the thing that God wanted me to do. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, I was blameless. But the things which were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. That to me is a powerful concept that Paul says the things that I thought were important in my life before becoming a child of God, they're nonsense now. They are of no avail to me anymore. And what a great message and an application for us that we should be able to look at the things of our former lives, whether it be sometimes our relationships, sometimes our friends, sometimes our jobs, perhaps our hobbies, perhaps the money that we once gained uh, through uh, deceit. Those are things that we leave in the past. But note, if you would, how Jesus appraised his status. Go back to Acts chapter 9 to our anchor text here where we have... uh, put ourselves this morning and look if you would closely at verses four and five of acts chapter nine it says he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying saul saul why are you persecuting me now what was saul doing at that time he was persecuting the church he was he was dragging christians from various places back to jerusalem where they were going to be captive of of the council and they could be punished accordingly. Paul says, when I was doing that, I had a good conscience. I thought I was doing what was right. I thought I was living correctly. And come to find out, that wasn't the case at all. He says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. By the way, when Jesus says, you are persecuting me, That reminds me that Jesus takes the persecutions that you and I face personally. That when you or I are harmed, Jesus says, you're harming me 
as well. The conclusion that I think to this whole thing here on this second major observation is simply this. We can't think we're right all we want. Instead, we must know that we are right. Going back to the postcard that I found just a couple of days ago, the fact is, is you can know if you are doing right just as much as you know you are doing wrong. And with that, we agree. But let's bring this then to a third concept, which goes to the heart of the postcard and the majority of religious teaching that we hear today. And that is, Saul was saved not because of faith alone or faith only. Saul recognized that the voice talking to him was divine, at least it seems to me. Now, there's, there's some ambiguity about the kind of Lord he may have used here in chapter 9 and verse 5. But it seems to me that it didn't take very long for Saul, later to be called Paul, to realize I'm talking to someone who has divine authority, someone who has real instruction for me. And then after Jesus identifies himself, Saul still called him Lord. He says, I'm Jesus, the one whom you are trying to drag through the mud. And when Saul realizes that, rather than saying, well, I don't want to talk to you. You're a false doctrine teacher, man. He says, what do you want from me? What can I do to be saved is the essence of what he's asking in verses 6 seven, and eight. And during the time of blindness, Saul did not eat, nor did he drink. And you'll notice that very last verse that we read there in Acts chapter nine, down in verses 18 and 19, that he does not eat nor drink until one thing has happened. And that is he is baptized for the forgiveness of his sins. Incidentally, I've always thought And maybe you've thought this as well. Maybe this isn't that unique of a thought. But incidentally, this to me would have been a perfect time to pray to God and through faith be forgiven. If I'm blinded for three days, not eating, not drinking, because I'm so distressed, because I'm so depressed, because I'm so uh, worried and bothered and anxious, that might have been the time where I say, I'm going to pray to God for forgiveness. Or this could have been the appropriate time for Ananias to say, I know that you are concerned about your status in relationship with God, and I know that you're bothered by the fact that you are blinded. Now's the perfect time for you to pray. You can pray, Lord, accept me as I accept you. You can pray the sinner's prayer, which is not found in Scripture. You can pray, accept me into your heart, which is not found in Scripture as well, because this reminds us that salvation can't come through prayer or faith alone. And again, why does this matter? It matters to those of us who are Christians who have the responsibility of teaching others. It matters to those who are not saved because you need to make a commitment today. And it matters to those of you who may be here this morning that walked in thinking, I'm a Christian, I'm a saved believer. But after what you're saying, I'm a little bit confused. Or maybe now I'm not confused, now I'm clear. And by the way, anytime you are confused, especially if you're new to this congregation or you're visiting with us, 
you do not bother us by asking us for clarification. We are happy to provide clarification to what we say, to what we teach, and to the things that we aspire to achieve in our teaching and in our preaching. Let me suggest to you that Saul was saved because he simply obeyed the Lord. And that is where I wanted us to close today before we go back to the postcard one more time. And that is, I want to ask three questions. And here are the three questions. Number one, why didn't Jesus simply tell Saul he was forgiven? Because there are other times in the life of Jesus where he would look at someone and say, son, your sins are forgiven. You know, the most famous instance, of course, is in Luke 23. That's the one with which we are the most familiar. But Mark chapter 2, he says, your sons are forgiven you. In other places in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, for example, he says, your sins are forgiven of you. And that really riled up the, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders of the first century. But Jesus can forgive sin. We, we agree that while he was on this earth living as a man, he was also divine, son of God, equal to God, and he had the power to forgive men of their sins. But he did not do that. Jesus says, I want you to go and talk with Ananias in the city of Damascus, and there you will be told what you must do. And by the way, that word must might be underlined in your Bible, because this is not a matter of something that should be done. It must be done in order to be saved. Secondly, why didn't Saul pray the sinner's prayer? Well, because that's not taught anywhere in Scripture, and thirdly, why was there a need for the journey to the city? Well, of course, partly because he's blind, but because he needs to meet Ananias where he can have the opportunity to have his sins washed away. You know, Saul did call upon the name of the Lord. Saul was saved when he was baptized to have his sins washed away, as it says in Acts 22 and verse 16, calling upon the name of the Lord. I have no doubt that the people who put this postcard together and the vast majority of religious organizations that teach a similar doctrine as this are, are good people. I don't doubt that. I, I don't doubt that they are well-intentioned. But this is not correct. This is a problem. This is false doctrine. For someone to teach that a person can simply accept Jesus into one's heart or believe or pray for forgiveness, is beyond the scope of what the Scriptures say. Again, if you are saved, we have the responsibility of being reinforced with this message. As the third audience, maybe you thought you were saved, and now you say, I, I, I don't think I am anymore. Or as the second audience that I mentioned, you're not saved at all. And you know that, and you need to make some sort of correction. I preached a sermon very, very similar to this probably about five years ago in Southern California, and I preached it just because I thought it needed to be preached. I just didn't really think much about it. I thought, well, I'm going to preach a sermon on, on Saul, the conversion, baptism, and highlight some of those things. And I had a 20-some-year-old man come up to me after services, and he says, I want to be baptized, having never met the person before. And it's kind of comical because my reaction was, well, what do you mean? <laughs> He's like, I want to be baptized. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He says, I want to be saved. 
And I, I'd never met this person before. And so I said, let's sit down and talk for a few minutes. So we sat down, we talked for about an hour, ended up baptizing him and baptizing his future wife that very evening. And that reminds me that the gospel still has the power to penetrate souls. And we saw that just a few days ago with the, with the birth of someone that we care deeply about. And I know that sometimes we say, there might be someone who is here who is not a Christian. I'm going to rephrase that because I know the group well enough. I know there are those who are here who are not Christians, who are of an accountable age. I know without a doubt that there are individuals who are listening who have the capacity mentally to understand what we're talking about and say, yeah, I'm not right in the sight of the Lord. I know that, and you know it as well. And it's uncomfortable because you're toying with, do I become a Christian or not? Am I ready or not? And we want to prod you, push you, plead with you, beg with you. We'll do whatever it takes to get you to make that choice. The other thing, just from a logistical point of view, you may be thinking, you know what? It would be really tough for me to come forward to before a group of 175 people and make that commitment. Would you be willing to do it with two or three people? Because if that's the case, I can guarantee you we'll all gladly exit today and allow you to be baptized in private. Now, that being said, it's an occasion to rejoice. So don't think about it being private in the sense that I don't want anyone to know about it. And I'm sure that's not your reason, but I understand being bashful. I understand being a little bit shy. And so maybe you've been thinking about becoming a Christian. Maybe you've been thinking about this choice because the fact is, is you can be saved the same way as Saul by being baptized today. And as we say, you are not guaranteed tomorrow. It's not us saying it. It's life saying it. It's the Bible saying it. And we hope that you knowing that a need to make a change is necessary, a need to become a Christian is of necessity, that you'll make that choice this very day. If you are thinking about that and you want to study further, we stand ready to assist you. If you are ready to make that commitment and you want to come forward during this song, we encourage you to do so. If at the conclusion of services, you want to come to me or to David or to one of the the shepherds or someone else that you trust who's a member of this congregation to say, it's time for me to make a change and to become a Christian, then do that. If we can help you to become a child of God, or to be strengthened as already one of God's children by praying for you today. We'd welcome the opportunity. Let us know while we stand, while we sing. <clears throat>